Working at a school these last five years or so has really given me some insight into what teachers and students deal with on a daily basis. There's much more than meets the eye. I'll start by reminding you that I'm what's called a media aide. I don't have the required degrees and schooling to be an actual librarian, let alone a teacher. I often feel like I don't really belong here. That's not to say that I'm not liked. The kids love me. I'm the fun adult. What I mean by that is, I'm sort of stuck in the limbo between normal citizen and superhero teacher. I'm not allowed to instruct children in any way, and I'm paid less than half of what a first-year teacher makes. But I'm still there, all day, and certainly will jump in to help when and wherever needed. COVID has certainly upped my value in giving teachers potty breaks. Sometimes, that help includes participating in school drills, whether fire, tornado, or lockdown take cover. In my time here, I've accompanied a class full of kids into a safe room in the center of the building. I've kept them quiet while exiting the building with a fire alarm blaring in the background. I've been asked to play the role of an active shooter and walk around loudly banging on doors and trying to open them. Things can feel silly at times, as a kindergartner lets a fart go in the middle of a dark, silent room. Sometimes I feel bad for the kids covering their ears, just feet away from a bell that's meant to be heard a mile away. And sometimes, it's downright scary, even for the adults. As a staff member, I've been a part of numerous staff development courses where police officers needed us to play the role of students so that we'll know what to do if it happens. My school is kindergarten through eighth grade. We're a big building. You'd think that there are lots of places to hide. My library is massive and unfortunately has five access points. If I can't check all the doors quickly enough once the alarm sounds, I'm in trouble. And so, too, could be a bunch of students. I can't explain the feeling of hearing a door open that should have been locked, crawling through rows of bookshelves until a police officer spots me and, while role-playing, says, you're dead. In that moment, it loses the feeling of being a game or practice and feels very real. Teachers are trained to handle all sorts of situations. It's a giant weight to carry. They do it with a smile on their face, and they take it very seriously. That's not to say it doesn't impact them mentally. These are grown adults, so if it weighs on them, what does it do to kids? Is preparedness a fair thing to trade for anxiety? I'm not a psychologist, but I'd have to say, probably. Better to be safe than sorry, right? It may scare kids, but I'd have to think it's less damaging than being completely unprepared in the event something does take place. I've said all along that I appreciate learning from professionals, police, and firemen, but if, God forbid, something goes down at my school, my hope would be that instinct would take over and I would do whatever I had to do to help keep kids safe. Sorry, that got a little heavier than I'm used to. As you've no doubt figured out, this episode is about safety drills. Well, one in particular, that schools participate in. We'll get to that in just a moment. In Michigan, we have yearly fire, tornado, and lockdown take cover drills. Earthquakes do little more than give us a friendly peck on the cheek occasionally, so those drills are not really a thing here. Fire drills are timed from the moment the bell sounds to the moment everyone is accounted for outside. The principal usually has a megaphone and congratulates everyone on their time and scolds a couple of knucklehead middle schoolers that aren't taking it seriously. Then the bell rings again and everyone files back into the school and the teachers struggle to get their kids to focus for the remainder of the day. Tornado drills are anything but COVID-friendly. Most classrooms have windows and very few have bathrooms anymore. I remember in elementary school, when there was a tornado drill, the boys went into the boys' bathroom and the girls went into the girls. The teacher always came in with the boys because, well, boys cannot be trusted. 
Twelve nine-year-old boys, all squeezed in around a toilet and a teacher. At our school, the hallway is a safer bet than the classrooms, and if possible, they try to get into one of the classrooms in the center of the building. Lockdown take cover we've already discussed. That typically consists of locking the door, barricading it, and getting out of sight. Alright, let's get away from the sad realities of the times we live in, and discuss a drill that was certainly scarier at the time, but has since become almost a novelty, thanks to the imagery that's left behind. Episode 11, Duck and Cover. Let's start with a quick message from the U.S. Federal Civil Defense Administration and Bert the Turtle. sucker for vintage media, but anything from the 1950s might be my favorite. It's so wholesome, even when discussing nuclear war. In that portion of the video, there's an animated turtle taking a stroll down a path when suddenly there's a monkey in a tree holding a stick with a piece of dynamite tied to the end. As the dynamite is about to explode, Bert pulls his body into his shell. He's safe. The monkey is reduced to ash, and the tree will never be the same. I understand it's a metaphor for what kids should do, but last I checked, kids don't have turtle shells on their backs, nor can they pull their extremities inside their skeletons. Perhaps turtles are where they got the idea to hide under a desk. You know how bad sunburn can feel. The atomic bomb flash could burn you worse than a terrible sunburn, especially where you're not covered. Now, you and I don't have shells to crawl into like Bert the turtle, so we have to cover up in our own way. First, you duck, and then you cover. And very tightly, you cover the back of your neck and your face. Duck and cover underneath a table or desk or anything else close by. Ah, okay. I understand the metaphor better now, but what if 1950s me is outside? What then, Mr. Great Voice Announcer Guy? That signal means to stop whatever you are doing and get to the nearest safe place fast. Always remember, a flash of an atomic bomb can come at any time, no matter where you may be. You might be out playing at home when the warning comes. Then be sure to get into the house fast, where your parents have fixed a safe place for you to go. If you are not close to home when you hear the warning, go to the nearest safe cover. Know where you are to go, or ask an older person to help you. You know the places marked with the S sign? There are safe places to go when you hear the alarm. If there is a warning, you will hear it before the bomb explodes. But sometimes, and this is very, very important, sometimes the bomb might explode without any warning. Then the first thing we would know about it would be the flash. And that means duck and cover fast wherever you are. There's no time to look around or wait. 
be like Bert. When there is a flash, duck and cover and do it fast. Okay, that makes sense. Now, science tells me that the light from the explosion will cause temporary flash blindness on a clear day up to 13 miles away. If it happened at night, that goes up to over 50 miles. The heat from the initial first wave is also an issue for those closer to the blast. If you're within around 7 miles of the blast, you can expect first-degree burns. If you're within 5 miles, you're looking at the kind that destroys and blisters skin tissue. The bomb that went off at Hiroshima was guessed to be at 540,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The wind speed and air pressure from the blast is something that a turtle shell or desk probably won't help much with. Anything within a 4 mile radius of a 1 megaton bomb will produce wind speeds of 158 miles per hour. If you're within a mile of the blast, wind speeds would clock in at over 450 miles per hour. I suppose it's a moot point if you're within a mile. Let's pretend 1950s Nathan survives all of that. How do I avoid the radiation, black rain, fallout? No matter where we live, in the city or the country, we must be ready all the time for the atomic bomb. Duck and cover! That's the first thing to do. Duck and cover. The next important thing to do after that is to stay covered until the danger is over. Yes, we must all get ready now so we know how to save ourselves if the atomic bomb ever explodes near us. If you do not know just what to do, ask your teacher when this film is over. Discuss what you could do in different places if a bomb explodes. Older people will help us as they always do, but there might not be any grown-ups around when the bomb explodes. Then, you're on your own. Remember what to do, friends. Now tell me right out loud. What are you supposed to do when you see the flash? Duck and cover. Duck and cover. The video doesn't mention radiation and nuclear fallout at all. That's kind of a big deal, and they just left it out completely. Good thing I brought along my official U.S. government booklet entitled Survival Under Atomic Attack. Side note, I actually have one. A reprint, obviously, but I did buy one from the Titan Missile Museum in Green Valley, Arizona. I'm super prepared. The Office of Civil Defense distributed these in October of 1950. The booklet begins with a positive message. You can survive. You can live through an atom bomb raid, and you won't have to have a Geiger counter, protective clothing, or special training in order to do it. The secrets of survival are, know the bomb's true dangers, and know the steps you can take to escape them. All right, let's see here. All right, page 12. Radiation sickness. Here we are. Should you be caught upstairs or in the open at the time of a bombing, you might soak up a serious dose of explosive radioactivity. Even so, the first indication that you had been pierced by the rays probably wouldn't show up for a couple of hours. Then, you would most likely get sick to your stomach and begin to vomit. However, you might be sick to your stomach for other reasons, too, so vomiting won't always mean you have radiation sickness. For a few days, you might continue to feel below par. And about two weeks later, most of your hair might fall out. By the time you lost your hair, you would be good and sick. But in spite of it all, you would still stand better than an even chance of making a complete recovery, including having your hair grow back. Hmm, that's very positive sounding, but I don't feel any better about things. Page 16. Six survival secrets for atomic attacks. This should help. 1. Try to get shielded. 2. Drop flat on the ground or floor. 3. Bury your face in your arms. 4. Don't rush outside right after a bombing. 
Five, don't take chances with food or water in open containers. And six, don't start rumors. I'll try and keep all of that in mind, thank you. I like gossip, though, so number six could be tough. It'll be hard not to talk about Karen and Chad and their end-of-the-world shenanigans. Page 21. What about radioactive clouds? Bingo. Here we go. Tell me how dangerous fallout is. In spite of the huge quantities of lingering radioactivity loosed by atomic explosions, people fortunately are not very likely to be exposed to dangerous amounts of it. That doesn't seem right. Most of the radioactive ash is carried harmlessly off in the drifting bomb clouds. High-level explosions definitely will not create areas of doom where no man dares enter and no plant can grow. In fact, they will leave very little radioactivity on the ground even near the point of explosion. Now, I don't know if it's because nuclear weapons have gotten bigger in size and strength or what, but this all seems like a load of stinky to me. I can understand the Office of Civil Defense not wanting to panic people too much, but I feel like they're adding rainbows and unicorns to their facts a little bit. If I have to tell a kindergartner that there could be an active shooter in the school, these guys could maybe blow a little less sunshine up my posterior. Okay, so the booklet didn't help much. Let's try another video entitled Fallout. When and how to protect yourself. This one came out in 1959. Let's see if things got any truthier by then. Danger will come not just from blast or heat or nearby radiation effect, but also from fallout. Fallout, which may occur miles and miles away from the blast. You need to know about fallout. Okay, that's better. Be real with the people. But when a wartime nuclear explosion occurs, a serious fallout follows. Thousands of tons of atomized earth, building materials, rocks, and gases may be thrown into the air, and the mushroom cloud containing them sometimes moves as high as 100,000 feet. Nearly 20 miles up, some of the radioactive particles spill out near the explosion site. Others may be carried for 10, 50, 100 miles or more. But how will you know if there is fallout? You can't hear, smell, taste, or see the radiation. But you yourself can detect the fallout particles that produce it. What? How? At night, put a white or light-colored plate outside. Examine it every 15 minutes or so. If dust is accumulated on the plate, treat it as fallout. The particles in that fallout behave like miniature x-ray machines, sending out radiation in all directions. If there are many particles, and if you are exposed to them long enough, you will be hurt. Okay, I need plates, but they have to be white. What else can I do to protect myself? In a house, it's best to get on the floor, away from doors and windows, or if you can, find a location with additional walls in the center of the building. A basement is even better if the house has one. Large buildings, such as apartment or office buildings, give good protection. The thick, heavy masonry of their walls and floors makes it hard for radiation to get through. Basements, inside rooms, or corridors on the lower floors are safest. The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags and place other sandbags on the floor above the shelter area. If you don't have sandbags, thick, solid layers of books, magazines or newspapers, or even a series of file cabinets standing close to each other can cut the radiation danger. 
All right, got it. Plates, sandbags, books, magazines, and filing cabinets. But what if after all that, I still get exposed? Food or water has been contaminated by the dust. Internal damage may occur. When dust has been left on skin, there will be skin burns. When you have been near dust too long, there may be radiation sickness. Exposure can even cause death. If you have had considerable exposure, you will vomit and grow weak. But after a few hours, this sensation will pass. And by the next day, you may have had the last of it. Even if you have been exposed to excessive fallout, you may eat and drink just as you normally would. But don't force yourself, whether you have had these symptoms or not. If civil defense radio announcements have said that radiation has been high in your section, Keep an eye on your condition for the next few days. Watch especially for these developments in the two weeks following exposure. Return of nausea, sore throat, bruise spots developing without any known reason, loss of hair. These conditions, or nosebleed, or diarrhea, should be reported to a doctor. That sounds awfully terrifying, but thank you for your honesty. All joking aside, it was a scary time back then, and I wonder how many people believed the propaganda that the government was churning out. I asked my dad to spin me a tale of yore about his time as an elementary student in the 50s. He said he doesn't remember much of the nuclear bomb stuff, whether that's due to partying in the 60s and 70s, or his brain blocking out the terrible memories we may never know. A quick Google search revealed some of the big nuclear happenings of the decade. January 27, 1950. Some guy named Klaus confesses that he gave atomic secrets to the Soviets. Four days later, President Truman announces the decision to proceed with development of the hydrogen bomb. In 1951, on the anniversary of Klaus's confession, the first nuclear test occurred at the Nevada test site. In June of 51, a British nuclear reactor went critical right before Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were convicted and sentenced to death for passing information on atomic weapons to the USSR. In 1952, on October 3rd, the first British atomic bomb, named Hurricane, was tested on the Montebello Islands. It had a yield of 25 kilotons. It was the pinky fingers out while sipping tea of bombs. Very delicate compared to later that month on Halloween when the U.S. exploded its first thermonuclear device named Mike. It had a yield of 10.4 megatons. Even back then, the U.S. was trying to one-up everybody. Fast forward to March 1st of 1954. The first deliverable hydrogen bomb design was tested. Bravo had a yield of 14.8 megatons. Radioactive fallout affected local islanders and a nearby fishing boat, killing some of the fishermen all in the name of science. In September of 53, America decided to stuff some of that radioactive junk in the trunk of the USS Nautilus, which became the first American nuclear-powered submarine. What should we do with this stuff other than potentially destroy our planet? Ah, oh, let's stick it in a tube full of our own soldiers and send it deep underwater. Yeah, great idea. In 1955, the USSR deployed two strategic bombers named Bear and Bison. The United Kingdom also announced that they wanted in on the thermonuclear fun. On November 22nd, the first true fusion device test was completed by the Soviet Union. In August of 1957, the Soviets continued to scare folks by announcing the successful launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile. 
While in October, Britain had another oopsie, as fire destroyed the core of a reactor at Britain's windscale nuclear complex, sending clouds of radioactivity into the atmosphere. And finally, on Halloween of 1959, the U.S. deployed its first operational intercontinental ballistic missile, the Atlas D. So by the end of the 1950s, radiation was in the air all over the place, and two macho-wacho countries knew how to send a bomb from one continent to the other. That list even failed to mention the Suez Crisis of 1956, when the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, received a number of reports, including unidentified aircraft over Turkey, Soviet MiG-15 fighters over Syria, a downed British bomber, and unexpected maneuvers by the Soviet Black Sea Fleet that appeared to signal a Soviet offensive. It's one of only 15 listed nuclear close calls, the most recent being something called the Norwegian Rocket Incident, that happened in 1995. Despite what you may hear, that was not my nickname in high school, nor was I involved. All of the incidents listed in the Suez Crisis turned out to be an explainable combination of events. Basically, a wedge of swans flying over Turkey, a fighter escort for the Syrian president returning from Moscow, a British bomber brought down by mechanical issues, and scheduled exercises of the Soviet fleet almost led to World War III. Here's a couple of other fun uranium nuggets from the early days of the atomic age. Until 1950, the Gilbert Company was most famously known as the creators of the Erector Set, which came out in 1913. 37 years later, they released the Gilbert U-238 Atomic Energy Lab, a science kit that included four small jars of actual uranium. Kids were encouraged to use the included scientific instruments to measure the levels of radioactivity observe radioactive decay, and even go prospecting for radioactive ores. The set sold less than 5,000 units and came off the shelves the next year, possibly because of the cost. The set originally sold for $49.50, which would be over $500 today, and possibly because, well, uranium. The set came with a few warnings, including users should not take samples out of their jars. Have you ever told a kid not to do something? Fun fact. I bought a uranium sample at the same gift shop I purchased my Survival Under Atomic Attack booklet. I'm not sure where I left it, though. The threat of nuclear war inspired a lot of the classic horror and sci-fi films that many still love today. One often used premise was the mutation genre. There was Them, with mutated ants, Beginning of the End, featuring grasshoppers, The Amazing Colossal Man, and Attack of the Crab Monsters. Here's a clip from the trailer. For crab monsters. On an isolated Pacific island, the Navy lands a party of daring scientists to solve the mysterious disappearance of an entire atomic research team. Strange horror strikes first at the plane that brought them. And then, earth-shattering tremors begin tearing the island to shreds. Okay, Professor, how are the crabs blowing up the island? I am not sure. In 1954, Japanese director Ishiro Honda began what would become the Guinness Book of World Records holder for the longest-running film franchise in history. Godzilla was said to symbolize nuclear holocaust from Japan's point of view. The monster is culturally identified as a metaphor for nuclear weapons. Producer Tomoyuki Tanaka once said that the theme of the film from the beginning was the terror of the bomb. Mankind had created the bomb, and now nature was going to take revenge on mankind. Director Ishiro Honda stated that if Godzilla had been a dinosaur or some other animal, he would have been killed by just one cannonball. But if he were equal to an atomic bomb, we wouldn't know what to do. So I took the characteristics of an atomic bomb and applied them to Godzilla. 
The fallout from the decade-long nuclear scare had found its way into almost everything. It was top of mind for film directors, toy makers, and nervous humans everywhere. Except for my dad, apparently, who doesn't remember hiding under a desk in class. Perhaps the media sensationalized things, that's not a stretch, and maybe the government used it as fear-mongering, also plausible. Or maybe people back then needed to keep one eye open at all times for good reason. Firing a nuke isn't as simple as pushing one button, but it's also not as hard to do as it probably should be. The baby boomers got atomic bombs to worry about. Millennials and Gen Z got school shootings. Neither is fair, but one at least was able to turn their fear into incredible film, television, books, and toys even. The seed that planted this episode was school safety drills. They are never meant to be fun. Safety is a serious thing, especially when it comes to protecting students. While they can be traumatizing for some, I think it's important to be prepared. And that's coming from a guy who was a Boy Scout for like a year and a half. I know stuff about preparedness. Hey, while I have your attention, if you enjoyed this podcast, please throw it a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever else you listen. It helps immensely in moving me up the ladder of the millions of podcasts out there. And be sure to reach out to me by visiting Curator135.com or following the podcast on any of the socials by searching at Curator135. I've even got an Instagram account now. I'm pretty hip. I think I have four followers. Until next time, be good to one another and be creative. Also, duck and cover. The world needs you.